starting at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah and Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for yourselves and let him... Sorry, pardon me. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our title this morning is part one and a three-part look at this chapter 17 together. And the series, the mini-series within this series, kind of titled The Champion's Challenge. Today being the matter of the one in between. As you know, this is the beginning of David and Goliath's big showdown that will come later on in this chapter. And this is such a celebrated story, among the most celebrated stories of the Bible, right? It's treated by our culture, the world around us, as sort of the underdog story. And we love underdog stories, don't we? Let's consider another underdog story from history that you might not have heard about concerning Robert the Bruce. You familiar with Robert the Bruce? Robert was the first king of Scotland. He was crowned in 1306 and reigned until 1324. He was the one that broke the hold of Great Britain over the nation of Scotland. Obviously, that's no small task, right? There's an old Scottish legend that tells a story of Robert staking out in a cave before a battle and contemplating the upcoming struggle, the overwhelming odds he was facing. And as he sat, he noticed a spider struggling to climb up its web to the ceiling of the cave. The spider tried again and again until finally it made its way up to the ceiling of the cave, reaching its goal, and Robert was well impressed by the tenacity of this spider. He found in the spider and in its journey that last push of inspiration that he thought he needed in order to struggle forward and end the British reign over Scotland, freeing them and making them a nation. Robert overcame overwhelming odds as Scotland's champion that day. Maybe it was the spider who was really the champion, right? We don't really know. 
How inspiring it is, though, to have a champion, right? Have someone to look up to in that capacity. A leader who brings victory out of seemingly impossible conflict. As we just read in chapter 17, the Philistines already have a champion. And the fact that they have a champion, and the point that we stopped in, kind of shines the light on the fact Israel has no champion, no one to stand in the valley with Goliath. We saw last week that because Saul walked in disobedience over and over again, ultimately rejecting the word of the Lord itself outright in chapter 15. Do you remember that? When Samuel had come to him and said, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? Saul said, well, I've done the word of the Lord. And Samuel says, no, you haven't. To obey is better than sacrifice. That is the right response to God's word. And because he has rejected God's word, God has now rejected Saul as his anointed king. That is his chosen king. Crowned not with a golden ring on his head, but crowned with the presence and power and promise of God himself. God took away the access that Saul had to the Holy Spirit. The one in whom Saul would rely for power and for direction. And now, Saul is useless. And yet he's also become exactly what Israel wanted. A king like all the nations. Which, as we see from the divine perspective this morning, means that Saul is useless. The fact that Israel begins this story without a true champion points out that this is not actually an underdog story at all. See, if this were truly an underdog story, Saul or someone else would say, I don't need any Holy Spirit. I have me. I'm enough for whatever the world can throw at me. I can be the champion if I just believe in myself. And honestly, that's kind of, from a worldly perspective, the application of this passage, isn't it? Right, ultimately that David's going to show up and he's going to kill Goliath. And all he really needed to do was believe in himself. That's the essence of an underdog story. And this is not an underdog story. Notice from our text that Saul is numbered with the shaking soldiers in great fear in verse 11. Dismayed by the setting, the sight, and the sound of the enemy champion's challenge. Saul has no inspiring cave story with a cute anecdote from a spider. And Israel has no champion. Of course, nearly everyone in this room knows already who the champion's going to be. David will be the one who steps up in the name of the God of Israel, as he says, to defeat this overwhelming foe in a miraculous and startling fashion. But greater than a simple underdog story, this step, this story in redemptive history, that is the story of God bringing salvation to the world, this part of that story is one of the most dramatic foreshadowings of what the true and better David would come and do. But for now, let's try to keep our minds locked into the predicament presented in the first 11 verses. Here the author clearly wants us to see the overwhelming opposition that Goliath represents. He wants us to see the shattered faith and utter fear of Saul and his army. And most strikingly and most importantly, we need to see the absence of the one standing between Israel and death. In your bulletin, you have an outline for this, so you can kind of follow along where we are in the sermon and in the passage. 
But there's basically going to be three observations that we'll look at. First, we're going to observe the setting of opposition in this story. Secondly, the site of opposition in the story. And then lastly, the sounds of opposition in this story. So let's consider the setting. The progress of the struggle with the Philistines up to this point, we know from 16 chapters before, the Philistines have been an overwhelming threat for a good long time. And every time Israel seems to get the edge on this battle, they also seem to realize that the Philistines' resources are nearly endless at this point. They find themselves in basically an old-fashioned Western standoff. Take a look at this map, if you would, in the next slide. And I know it's a little bit tiny. I probably should have zoomed in on the top part here. But you can kind of see, if you're curious, about what's going on and who's where and all these kinds of things. The Valley of Elah over here is where Israel was camped out. And they're meeting in between Azekah and Sokoth. And this is, again, the, dra- the drama of the geography in this passage is incredibly important. They're standing literally on two sides of a mountain with a valley in between them, wherein Goliath will find himself. There's two other things I want to point out here, so I'll walk back again. <laughs> is that the, the zoomed-in portion at the bottom points out that Gath, which is where Goliath is from, is really not too far. Thanks, Brian. And if you go back up to the top, you can see over to the east, that Bethlehem, while further away than what's going on here, still just to the east here. And the, the map kind of gives us the, the sort of layout of where these champions are going to come from. Now, we're not going to talk about the champion for Israel in this context here today, but just kind of get an idea of the drama of the geography, if you would. Interestingly, this territory that's being occupied by the Philistines is technically Judah territory, as the author mentions in the beginning. This should remind us of the failure of the conquest of Canaan. Do you remember? Upon leaving the slavery in Egypt and after the 40 years in the wilderness, Israel was to be led in by Joshua to conquer all the tribes of Canaan and to take Canaan and make it what it's supposed to be. God's promised land. But there was failure. There were a lot of times that Israel didn't complete the job. And the matter of the Philistines is probably one of the biggest ones here. The Philistines were one of the nations driven out by Israel, but not ultimately destroyed. And now we see the fruition of that mistake. So Saul and his troops... Are gathered. You see a contrast in that already in verse 1. The Philistines gathered their armies, and then we see Saul and the Israelites were gathered. So there's a difference in term here. So uh, the, the Philistines gathered their forces. That's an active voice. I know this is turning into an English lesson, and you might not think this is very important, but you can see who really has the control here. The Philistines gather their forces, and Saul and his forces are gathered. That's the passive voice. That is not active, but that is what's happening to them. They are, in one sense, being forced into this position. The confrontation is something they must act upon. And they're gathered not by dynamic leadership action, nor, sadly, by spirit-led direction. They're gathered by the the pressure of overwhelming opposition. Remember Saul's purpose for his kingship. We saw this in chapter 9 and verse 16. When God was telling Samuel to go off and anoint Saul as the king, 
He said that he is the one who will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. We might ask at this point particularly, has God told a lie? Has God failed to make his word true? Well, no, certainly not. There's moments where salvation was happening by Saul's hand, as it were. Right? Saul saved them from the Ammonites. He saved them. He, he pushed back the Philistines several times. He's, he's sort of gaining temporary victories and temporary freedoms for Israel. And what we see as we come to chapter 17 is that that's exactly what God meant. Yeah, he will save, in a sense, my people from Israel. But he will not save them permanently. Sorry, save my people from the Philistines, but he will not save them permanently. We can imagine those very words, that role that Saul was meant to play, ringing in Saul's ears as he's reduced to yet another trembling foot soldier, not knowing what to do next. The war with the Philistines has come to a decisive, dramatic moment here in the Valley of Elah. And in one sense, nobody knows what's going to happen, and in another sense, everybody knows exactly what's going to happen. Now we, with our omniscient reader viewpoint here, know David's coming. This is all going to be okay. We need to sit in Saul's shaking boots for a moment. We need to recognize that there is a hopelessness and a fear that is crippling in this passage. And it all revolves around war, doesn't it? 16 chapters, we come to the 17th. War is constant in 1 Samuel. A few things feel as overwhelming or carry the weight of such devastating consequences as war does, right? Ultimately, death is our great enemy, and it feels imminent in this passage. How would you describe the setting in the first 11 verses? There's certainly hopelessness. There's certainly fearfulness. There's doubt. There's questioning. There's worrying. Emotions that we all feel today, right, in many ways. And it would be very easy for us to take this passage and say, let's make our own underdog story. Because we have overwhelming opposition, don't we? We feel fearful. We feel worried. We feel concerned. Death is looming over us, if not shouting loudly at us. That is not the point of this passage. They need a leader to rise up. They would love to have a champion in this moment. But the fact that there is none highlights the reality of Saul's relationship or perhaps the lack of his relationship with God. And this has a direct impact on everyone else. You know, it may be a very easy thing for you to justify the stagnancy or the staleness of your Christian life by thinking, it doesn't have any effect on anyone else around me. You know, I'm not sinning in such a dire way that it's, it's affecting other people around me or anything, so I'm, I'm really fine where I am. Saul shows us that's not the case. A decreasing, weak, failing relationship with God is going to have effects on people around you. It may not have the extreme effects of what Saul's Saul's results were here as the king of Israel, but certainly the people that you care about are either going to be negatively impacted by your sin or positively impacted by the work of God in your life. And church, there is no gray area. You cannot live neutrally in this because there is opposition. Go back to our passage. The opposition is clearly overwhelming as we can see the setting of a conflict and see no sign of God's direction or leadership in his people. And again, this isn't to the fault of the Lord here at all. This is a matter of judgment on the people of God. 
It may be that in moments where God seems silent in your life, it might be, in one sense, not judgment, because Christ has taken all that judgment. Remember what we sang? It was finished on that cross. But it might be a matter of discipline in your life. You know, there are definitely times, I think, with our kids, where we kind of see them wandering off or, or jumping up and down on the couch and walking along the edge of it, and you've told them so many times, don't do that, that's not safe, you're not going to like it. And then at one point, maybe it's just a dad thing, so, so dads nod if you agree. You kind of just step back, kind of say, okay, I'll be here when you fall. Thanks, Josh. Not the only one. Well, we've seen the setting of opposition. Let's consider the site of opposition. This is the exciting part. And not exciting in that it stirs up hope in us or anything, but this is an interesting part of the Bible. It shouldn't just be gripping for us as kids, but as grown-ups as well. This is what people want to experience in storytelling when they're doom-scrolling through Netflix on Friday night. God has given us this captivating story in the truth of his word. I mean, this is better than just a story because it is real. It really happened. Goliath was a real dude. Don't let higher scholasticism tell you that Goliath was really just kind of a taller guy and it seemed as though he might have been nine foot nine in that valley. God's word is true and trustworthy and reliable. And so we have the sight of opposition And these ominous words, there came out of the Philistine camp a champion. Literally, champion means the man of the between, which is where our title comes this morning. The one in between. How perfect is this term for the setting we've already seen? We have the mountain, we have armies on either side with a valley in between. And now Goliath comes forth to the valley as the champion. Literally again, the man of the between. You can imagine the excitement of the Philistines in this moment. Listen, we faced your little golden box thingy a couple chapters ago, but now you have to face our giants. How do you like that? Where did they get this guy, you might wonder? Well, you say, we already looked at the math map. It was Gath. But giants aren't just something that you wander into town and say, hey, we're kind of recruiting for the army here. We'd like to know who your biggest, tallest, strongest guy is. And we're hoping he might, uh, you know, crest nine feet in height. Well, if you remember back to the book of Deuteronomy, there were spies that were sent into the promised land. And most of them came back giving a fearful report saying, hey, there's a bunch of giants in there. We really shouldn't go. They're just going to crush us. You know, that's a depressing part of the Bible too, isn't it? Because this is the generation after the generation that came out of Egypt. And they're living with all the stories of God's plagues and the miracles that he did to bring Israel out. And they're so overwhelmed by these giants that they say we shouldn't even move forward. Of course, all but two of them. Well, in Joshua 11 and verse 22, if you're curious, we get a little note that some of these giants remained in Gaza of Gath. They were called the Anakim. And this is what Goliath is. So Goliath, with all the shekels and cubits and things like that, let's put those off to the side a little bit and speak English. Goliath stood at an insane nine foot, about nine inches as well. Just for reference, and I know this is probably like an old reference, but I have a new reference coming up pretty soon here. Shaquille O'Neal, seven foot one. It's like over two feet taller than Shaq. That's incredible. I don't know if you've ever met Shaq or hung out with him or anything. I never have, but I did go to a Cavs game one time that he played, and I remember I was sitting pretty close to the floor, not even on the floor level, but the sheer magnitude of this guy. 
I mean, you can barely pay attention to what's going on with the game because you're just like, look at his muscles, and boy, my goodness, he's so tall, and he can't make any free throws at all, surprisingly. But this is Goliath, bigger than Shaq. His armor and weapons were the peak of technological advancement at the day. Not only that, the blacksmith had everything supersized for the big boy. He's dressed in a bronze helmet. His chainmail coat weighs over 120 pounds. It's like carrying another person. His bronze leg armor, he's basically a tank, church. He's not afraid of a stray arrow from Israel. Israel would have loved to have this guy because he seems to have it all from what they can see. Remember Saul? Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was tall. He was tiny compared to this guy. He didn't compare. Goliath's sword is massive. No one else could pick up the spear and javelin and use it if they were even skilled enough to kill him. And for seeing all that Goliath is, it's painfully obvious, no one stands in between on Israel's behalf. The appearance of Goliath shatters the courage and faith of the soldiers before he even speaks. And that was the point. See, that armor wasn't the armor that all the other Philistines had. They saved that specifically for Goliath. Goliath wasn't actually meant primarily to be a fighter. Like, he was actually meant to send a message. And yeah, there was fight, there was bark, sorry, there was bite behind that bark. But the bark was supposed to be loud enough to silence any opposition. And silenced Israel, it did. Should remind us uh, from a couple weeks ago in chapter 16 and verse 7, as Samuel is looking for the next king and he goes to Jesse's sons and he's trying to decide, oh, which one is it? Is it the really tall one? Is it the one with the great beard? No, verse 7, do not look at his appearance for I have rejected him. You can imagine, I don't know where Samuel is at this point. You can imagine perhaps in a weak moment, Samuel might see Goliath and say, and you had me get the little shepherd boy? Like, look at their champion. He's overwhelming. We go from chapter 16 and we learn that God sees and judges from the heart of a man, but Israel and Saul, and let's be honest, us too, we judge everything based on what we see outwardly. The sight of opposition is unbeatable strength in this passage, and they can't even hope to match it. Let's consider the sound of opposition next. As we come to the challenge of the champion, we can imagine the effect of Goliath's words on the already stammering Israel soldiers. In verse 8, it says, He shouted. He didn't need a microphone, not that they had them, of course. Why have you come out? Why bother? Am I not a Philistine? Literally, he's not just saying a Philistine. He's actually saying, am I not the Philistine? And here's where the modern lingo comes in. Something that Gen Zers use is really, really helpful here. Maybe you've heard it. One way of bragging online now is to proclaim yourself as him. To say, don't you know who I am? I'm him. This is exactly what Goliath is doing. He's saying, I'm him. He's the champ. He knows it. Who am I? I'm your worst nightmare. I'm him. What about Israel? He says, am I not a Philistine and are you not? Servants of Saul? Where is that guy, by the way? 
You're head and shoulders above everybody else. The tall one, you're king and you're the servant. So where is he? Why are you all here? This should be me versus Saul and it should be over immediately. Because I'm him. Well, we know where Saul is. He's dumbstruck. He's less like the Saul of chapter 11. For there, it was that he was angry with the Ammonites for their opposition to Israel. He's rushed on by the Holy Spirit, and he becomes the man of the in-between for Israel. Here, he's less like chapter 11 Saul and more like chapter 10 Saul. Do you remember where he was in chapter 10? When Samuel was to proclaim, here is the one God has chosen for you, and where is he anyway? Oh, he's hiding in the baggage. This is where Saul is effectively now as well. Goliath presents the challenge. It's single combat. It is the epic option for combat and war. One champion versus one champion. All riding on one guy, but guess what again? Israel has no guy. So Goliath defies when no one comes forth. He mocks Israel. And it isn't just the armies of Israel that he mocks. No, it is ultimately the God of Israel whom he mocks. I wonder if I could ask you now in this moment, how do you see God defied and mocked in your life today? And, and I would have you hold that question in your mind for next week as you consider David's words to come. But Goliath's defiance echoes that of the old enemy and accuser of God's people. In effect, we could say that he's saying, you've brought this on yourself. You're guilty and cursed because of your sin. The enemy exalts himself over God's people and declares, I'm him. I'm going to be your God now. You will serve me, for there is no champion, no one to stand in between for you. Saul's hiding in the baggage. There's no one on earth that can carry your sin and rebellion before God to judgment. All that is left to you is death. And this church is the ultimate overwhelming opposition we face today. We're overwhelmed by death. Our world's desire ultimately is to dodge it as best we can, right? Try to even remove the effects of it on our face, right? But we need someone to stand in between for us. The solution to death is not to just try to prolong the distance between us and it, but to go into the valley and find a champion who can stand in our place, in the between for us. Verse 11 says, the army is shattered. You know, we're often encouraged to find ourselves in David in this passage. But these first 11 verses see our place so much more clearly. We're in the ranks of these fearful soldiers. You could look in, the, in between in verses 9 and 10. There's no response at all, and that's what brings about the mockery of Goliath. The exhortation from the text, then, is not to embrace the underdog story of your life, because death looms over all of us. And sometimes it not only looms, it shouts. And so verse 11 says that they were dismayed and greatly afraid. That word dismayed, it sounds like something we would say if we're trying to be proper about our fear. Like, oh, I feel slightly dismayed this afternoon. But this word means shattered. They're broken to pieces over the setting of opposition, over the sight of opposition, and now over the sound of the opposition they face. We are in the ranks of the shattered soldiers, church. We can't pull off our underdog story. We are dismayed. We are greatly afraid. It's the soldiers' courage, zeal, strength, and hope are all shattered and sapped entirely. 
at the view of the opposition before them. And so it is with death. Their weapons don't compare to Goliath's. Their lack of a champion, they have nothing and no one in which to trust. So what can they do? How do God's people respond to overwhelming opposition? How do we respond to death? I think this passage shows us that there might be two options. Here's the first one. We're shattered by the sights and sounds of it. Our senses are crushed by the gravity of the enemy's words or from the devastation of death. When was the last time you felt this kind of pressure? Either the accusation of Satan reminding you of how unworthy you are before God, reminding you of that sin that you can't let go of, reminding you of how useless you are for the kingdom of God's purposes. Or perhaps it's the matter of death. Maybe death has devastated the life of someone near you. And how often we're reminded of that. We can be shattered by the sights and sounds of the opposition we face. By sin and death, the enemy mocks God today. The enemy's goal is to influence the world to dive headlong into sin. And not only to dive into it, but to celebrate it. And to call it all, to call everyone to approve of and allow rampant evil to run loose anywhere it wants to go. So what do we do? If our response to this is to be shattered by the sights and sounds of it, then we just worry. We, we worry about sending our kids out to school or even to our backyard. We worry about what our employer will require us to say or do or affirm. We worry about what the government and tech giants are going to accomplish and how they might loom over us and be listening, even as we're talking right now. Turn off your phones. They're listening. It's so easy to live in fear. And so we easily hang on to the sight and sound of death and the overwhelming power of opposition and the defiance to our God. So we keep an anxious eye on job postings. We become petrified by the progress of things like AI technology. Notice in this passage, there's no mention, not even in the rest of the chapter, of the Ark of the Covenant, of priests coming to pray or offer sacrifices. There's nothing like that at all. We need to have a second option. We must not be shattered by the sights and sounds of death and opposition. But rather, we must be compelled to find the one who stands in the in-between for us. Goliath says at the end of his speech, give me a man, give me a man. He doesn't say, give me an opponent, give me a champion, give me a challenge. He says, give me a man as though though the the one that they're going to throw out to him is just being thrown to the dogs. Interestingly enough, there's a question later on. Goliath says, am I a dog that you're coming at me with sticks? Give me a man. None of us can dive into the mouth of death. None of us can stand before the tide of opposition that the world presents to us. But God alone can give a man to the giants. His choice. The one that he makes useful by his spirit. The champion of his decision. The man in between. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is to Christ. We don't see the fact that Christ rules over everything, do we? What we see seems to be the opposite. And it's gaining momentum. But Hebrews tells us that though we don't see it, it's actually there. 
we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his, what? His enemy? His enemy who suffered under, oh, how dare you defy and mock Israel and their God? No, Hebrews tells us that it was because of the suffering of his death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The way out of the opposition of the world and the opposition of death is for someone else to taste it on our behalf. To drink the cup dry. And that is what Christ has come to do. That is how he stands in the in-between for you and still stands in the in-between for you because you still deal with your sin, don't you? We still have these moments of weakness, of fear and of doubt and of leaning on pretend gods, idols. And Christ has tasted death for us so that by the grace of God, we might have life. We might find freedom and victory in him. Church, the message of the gospel in this passage is that the champion must die to conquer death. He was made lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor because in his suffering and death, he became the champion of his people and the champion of his father in heaven. Christ is the only one in the between. He alone can go before the looming power of sin and death and emerge victoriously. At the cross, our God poured out all his just wrath for the sin of his people on this one unique individual, the only champion. The people of God who look at his appointed champion receive all the benefits of the champion's victory. Namely, a confidence that now, as we read earlier, death has no sting. Sin has no claim, and Satan has no argument. The glory of our champion is in his sacrifice, in his tasting of death, and his victory over sin and death. And in us, by faith alone, church, we're not going to earn this. We don't stand in the valley with Christ and say, let me help you out a little bit. I see Goliath has that piddly dink uh, armor bearer with him. Maybe you need an armor bearer too, God. Can I carry the shield? Can I? Nothing. There is one champion, church. And we stand behind him by faith. Not by our taking up our arms to assist. Not even by being inspired to become the underdog of our own story but by a faith that transforms our fearful, shattered hearts into Christ-exalting, faith-filled worshipers who do not shake in the opposition before them, but stand firm, trusting that the champion will appear and in God's timing, victory will be won. Many of you have reached out to our brother Jeff during this time. He was in the ER as of last Sunday. He's doing rehab now. It seems like he's doing really good. He's moving forward. But I told him this morning I need to use him for sermon illustration. Last Sunday, he was in the ER, and as he was laying in his bed and talking to me about his stroke, I told him, man, I'm so sorry this is going on. This is such a bummer. You know, I really wanted to do what the Bible says, you know, bear each other's burdens. And, and truly, I think I was, you know, I was saying, this is terrible. This is awful. This is going to retransform the, the, your whole life. Every aspect of your life is going to be affected by what happened on Sunday I'm so sorry. Well, in all of my thinking and pronouncement and all this, Jeff's simple faith comes through in the words, it's okay, the Lord knows what he's doing. It was as if in the context of our passage, Jeff knew and continues to know that Jesus stands in the between for him. It really made me wonder, could I so boldly trust 
in my champion as well if I were in his circumstances. So what is the good news of this passage? It is simply this. We cannot overcome our enemy by our own strength. We must lay down our arms and look to the man in between. Do you see today how you may be standing shattered and fearful before overwhelming opposition? It may be the sight or the sound of something in this world. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Stand amazed in the love of Jesus the Nazarene. And remember chapter 16. Do not look on the outward appearance. Our natural senses can't perceive what the Spirit of God, by the Word, reveals to His people. We must go to the Word. We must walk by the Spirit. We must trust in His lead so that we can see the way He sees because we're not going to see it any other way. We don't need to be shattered because we have a greater champion to fix our eyes upon. We have a champion who dispels the accusation of the enemy. You're cursed. You're worthless. You're hopeless. We can sit there and be like, you're right, Satan. I know. My sin has brought all those things on me, but I have a champion. There's somebody between me and my sin. There's somebody between me and Satan's accusation. And ultimately, church, praise God, there's somebody between me and death. Is that true for you this morning? Let's not let the setting, the sights, or the sounds of death and opposition and mockery leave us shaking in our boots, but let's move forward into the valley. Wherever the Lord has you today, you could probably take that landscape that we talked about and recognize where sort of your safe place is and where the valley is, where the the champion needs to be. And the champion has promised that he would be with us, that he would never leave us nor forsake us. So where he is, we are meant to be, and there is no better place, even if that is the valley facing the giant. Don't go with your own armor, with your own sling. Go trusting in the champion. He is the one that calls us to proclaim his victory over sin and death and to walk in love because of the new life that we have in him. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, great God, we see from your word that a true champion is needed. Thank you for providing us with your son, Lord, apart from you, we're shattered and fearful in the valleys of life without him. Would you bring the truth of our champion, of your champion, to bear in our lives this morning? Grant your spirit that we may move forward in joy, that we may face the overwhelming opposition of this world with love and contentment, knowing that our champion is coming again to make all things right. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.